Hello everyone, welcome or welcome back to the Ticket Podcast with me, Noemi Di Stefano. This episode is brought to you in partnership with Pulse by Public.com, providing tools for IR teams to engage with retail shareholders. Coming up on the show this month, we dive into the world of investor relations in the defense sector, where confidentiality reigns supreme. Join me later in the episode as I chat with Jonathan Sigman, Senior Vice President of Corporate Development and Investor Relations at Terran Orbital. We will unravel the secrets of retail investor targeting and engagement and look at how to navigate the labyrinth of confidentiality. But before we get to that, let's talk about the latest update in the world of ESG frameworks. The Task Force on Nature-Related Financial Disclosures has just dropped its long-awaited reporting guidance to tackle the risks tied to our natural world. Unveiled at New York Climate Week on the 18th of September, the final recommendations have been in the making for two years. In summary, it's all crafted to make companies spill the beans on how their activities affect nature, meeting the demands of investors and regulators. Now, you might be wondering what's really TNFT all about? How should I go about integrating yet another framework into my reporting practices? Well, to start with, it looks like the TNFD has somehow got you covered with a handy guide to kickstart your journey. But we wanted to get someone to explain it all, so we sat down with one of the TNFD task force members, Jessica McDougall. She's the chair of corporate governance and engagement practice at advisory firm Longacre Square Partners and former director of investment stewardship at BlackRock. Jessica has got some fantastic insights to share on how companies can integrate TNFD recommendations into their reporting and disclosure processes. So without further ado, let's dive straight in. Jessica McDougall, Chair of the Corporate Governance and Engagement Practice at Longacre Square Partners, it's a great pleasure to welcome you to the Ticker Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's really great to be here with you. Thank you for joining us this month. You're here to offer an overview to our listeners on the impact of the newly released and, I should say, long-awaited TNFD framework, the impact that it's going to have on businesses, what it means for companies and how they can, they can prepare. So you've been a member of the TNFD task force since it was launched, so for the past two years, and uh, you have joined Longacre's uh, Square Partners this week itself. Uh, and I will go in uh, into detail into your new role in a minute, but when you joined the task force, you were working as a director of investment stewardship at BlackRock. So to start with, could you provide us with an overview of your latest roles and responsibilities at BlackRock and, you know, what motivated the company and yourself as well to get involved in TNFD? Sure, absolutely. Thank you again. And maybe just for a little bit of background, as you mentioned, I lead the corporate governance and engagement practice 
practice at Longacre Square Partners, where we work with company boards and management team members, as well as activist investors across a range of situations, including proxy contests and M&A, and on an ongoing basis for governance, strategic, and sustainability-related best practices. But prior to joining Longacre Square, I spent the last seven years as a director on the BlackRock Investment Stewardship Team, where I was responsible for overseeing engagement and proxy voting activities for companies within the industrials and material sectors for the U.S. and Canada. And this is a fairly wide range of companies, but many of which are carbon intensive and resource intensive. And so my conversations with these companies about how they were managing climate and nature related risks led me to participate in the TNFD, which is the Task Force on Nature Related Financial Disclosures, which really sought to help provide a disclosure framework for companies to provide greater information to their investors on how they were considering these risks. And in many cases, the related opportunities as it pertained to their business model. That's great. And uh, how does uh, your new role relate to the work that you have done at TNFD? Absolutely. So working with the TNFD over the last two years was a great learning experience. And for many companies, uh, this is a very new topic. Nature-related risk hasn't been incorporated in strategic planning, perhaps in the way that it maybe should have been over the last several years, particularly in light of climate change and how that's impacting the availability of resources. So my role going forward is really to provide some of the learnings that I had in helping to craft the TNFG framework, but more importantly, to help companies think through how they can present to their investors and other interested stakeholders some of the ways in which these risks might be material to their business and also how they're appropriately mitigating them for that longer term outlook and long term value creation for their shareholders. And I mean, I, as you said, is is a new framework. And I feel like every time that there is the, the launch of a new ESG framework, companies go into a little bit of a panic mode. Uh, at least this is what, what I've seen. Uh, and what I have also seen, though, is that in general, uh, framework issues, the, these organizations like TNFD or ISSB release those some sort of guidance that complements the framework for companies. And they are usually aligned to existing frameworks. And it is the case of TNFD. NFD, which is aligned to TCFD. Um, so talking about alignment, how do you see TNFD complementing or aligning with existing disclosure requirements like TCFD or GRI uh, and other sustainability reporting standards? Absolutely. One of the key goals for the TNFD was to align with the TCFD and the four pillars of governance, strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets. Seeing, of course, how well that disclosure framework was adopted over the last several years, but also noting the intersection of climate and nature-related risks, with the idea that at some point these disclosures would not be separated, but become much more intertwined and, quite frankly, easier for companies to report on these type of considerations for their investors. The TNFD has a series of mapping graphics on the website that showcase how when companies disclose against the suggested TNFD recommended disclosures, they are also able to fulfill some of their regulatory requirements as well as other framework uh, suggested metrics and targets. So there's not a direct alignment with any existing framework out there, uh, but that was you know, particularly intentional to make this a little bit more streamlined and consistent for companies across a variety of sectors. So 
where there are different regulatory requirements, companies who utilize the TNFD framework may be able to fulfill components of what their regulators are asking for. And um, they may need to offer some supplemental data points as well. But the idea was for a consistent basket of metrics and core components of those governance strategy, risk management, and metrics and targets that could be utilized for global companies and for a global investor base as well. Okay, and if you were to give some practical examples of how companies can then integrate the TNFD recommendations, I know it's like a very difficult thing to kind of like summarize, but uh, if you were to bullet point some practical examples of what they can do to integrate in their reporting and disclosure processes, what would you say? Absolutely. So this is intended to be an iterative process. There will be no company that has a perfect TNFD report right out of the gate. And Mm -hmm. while this certainly can be daunting for many companies, depending on where they are in this journey, or if they've started to consider nature-related risks and opportunities at this point in time, or even um, started to think about the metrics that they might need to measure to make sure that they have sustainable business practices in place, it, it will vary widely across companies, but I think the important part is, is that the first three pillars in particular for governance, strategy, and risk management are core components of a company's ability to operate over the long term and are perhaps entry points for those that might be thinking about how, for example, their reliance on water or land or basic inputs such as timber or wheat could be impacted if those materials are not as available as perhaps they had been historically or are priced differently than they maybe had in prior strategic planning models. So it's this is an entry point for companies to start thinking about their business in a way that's a little bit more fulsome as it pertains to nature-related risks and opportunities, but um, the idea is for that to be a very iterative process. And I mean, I think you have already highlighted some of the benefits for companies that embrace the, the TNFD framework. But I don't know if there is anything to that you would like to add in terms of, you know, how does it benefit their engagement with their, uh, with their investors or the potential of expanding their, their shareholder base if they're willing to? Absolutely. So I think this framework, um, for those that are interested in in getting started, it really can showcase how companies, those that are best in class, might have been thinking about this in a way that others hadn't within their peer set and to showcase how they're looking at this from an operational perspective to make sure that their strategies and their businesses are more resilient across a range of scenarios, whether that's related to climate change, whether that's related to availability of resources that are required for their business inputs. So I think it's an opportunity for companies to showcase how they've been thinking about their business model strategically across perhaps a global supply chain. And, you know, I think in some cases, these disclosures where they're identified as best practices could help companies to attract new investors, particularly those that are increasingly aware of how companies need to be considering the risks of climate and nature as it pertains to that ongoing business model. I, I wanted to ask you if you could um, share some examples of uh, successful engagements um, during your time at BlackRock when the company influenced positive um, changes in companies' ESG practices, if you had any examples. Sure. You know, I, I won't be able to provide specific names exactly for those engagements, but I think... Um, 
you know, something that's really important is these conversations coming from investors uh, with a fiduciary duty for their clients in mind are really looking for companies to demonstrate how they're considering the risks that are most material to their business and can ultimately lead to those long-term returns for their investors. And, you know, simple examples, I think, you know, we've had many conversations related to climate and emissions reduction efforts that can lead to efficiency gains for companies across a range of sectors, but also in better management and measurement capabilities, for example, for the use of water or sustainable farming practices or better relationships with their suppliers can help companies not only establish more consistent access to those resources, but in many cases, better pricing and also greater efficiencies, which ultimately lead to the bottom line and cost reductions. So I think when we think about this from an operational perspective, from an efficiency perspective, there are plenty of examples how when companies consider these elements in the context of a business strategy, perhaps in a wider lens than they had historically, there are fairly immediate opportunities for cost savings or also for efficiency gains down the road. And, and, and I mean, given your experience, how, how would you go about assessing whether a company is ready and resilient if you if you think about the transition to a lower carbon economy? You know, I think this is very specific to an individual company's business model and also their supply chain. So it, it's hard to generalize exactly what ingredients would lead one to be assured that a company is ready for a low carbon transition, but really engaging with the board members and management team members on how they're thinking about this multifaceted approach in the context of their business is a helpful insight into how the leaders of a company are preparing for perhaps an energy shift, a strategic shift, or even just a greater awareness of a change in consumer preferences or the impacts of, of climate change on the availability of resources. These kind of conversations and disclosures help to showcase how companies are effectively managing for their particular business model. When it- just wanted to ask you if you had, you know, some advice for investors um, that are um, for, for those who are interested in, in sustainable investing and in responsible um, stewardship in terms of like evaluating investment options or even advocating for change within their own portfolio. So I think it's it's a little bit difficult to look at change on a full-scale portfolio level. Uh, again, I think mm. some of these considerations are very company-specific, although, of course, there are systemic risks that are persistent across companies within different sectors. And so for those investors, particularly those that are long-term holders, I think it is an an advantage to be able to speak to the company's board members, directors, um, management team members in in an open dialogue to help provide feedback on what you would find most valuable to understand how a company is effectively guiding their strategy and managing risk. And I think you know the TNFD can be a helpful discussion point for these conversations where companies might be able to start thinking about those first three pillars of governance, strategy, and risk management. And as those disclosures progress, investors might increasingly find it useful to ask companies to provide slightly different metrics than perhaps they had originally considered or dive into deeper conversations based on how the company has identified the areas that are most material for for them to consider in the context of nature and climate-related risk. 
Okay, thank you for, for that advice. To, just to finish, I was uh, curious to, to to get your views on, you know, what are your, your hopes or expectations in terms of uh, TNFT adoption um, going forward? Do you expect the framework to be maybe well received or early received in certain regions of the world or by certain companies rather than others um, in, in the in specific sectors? You know, as far as adoption, I think there is perhaps a, a more immediate awareness of companies that have a direct relationship to land or water that might be more exposed to some of these considerations than others. But my hope is that climate nature-related disclosures will become merged in a way that doesn't separate the conversation as they are very much related. But ultimately, I think this is another part of a strategic consideration for companies. And I don't think it should be necessarily bucketed in a separate category, but one that investors would find useful to best understand how the management teams that they're invested in are appropriately guiding the company. And the last question is just uh, my my curiosity. I always ask this uh, every time I interview someone about um, new frameworks coming uh, into the scene. Obviously, these frameworks are all uh, voluntary. But do, do you think um, they will? There is a potential for them to become mandatory, or do you hope that they would be mandatory one day? So it's difficult to pre- predict what kind of disclosure frameworks would become mandatory or remain voluntary. But, you know, here in the U.S., we're waiting for SEC-related yeah. climate disclosures. And I think it could be a natural fit for companies to start incorporating how they're thinking about some of the nature-related risks. I'm not sure if that kind of mandatory disclosure would be on the heels of the climate-related disclosure, given how um, how many years it's taken us to get to this point. But I think it's part of a natural conversation on, again, a broader strategy approach for companies to start speaking to their investors about. Okay, I guess we will have to, to wait and see. Uh, we'll have to leave it there for, for now. But thank you so much for joining us on the show, Jessica. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. Companies are always looking to build stronger relationships with current and potentially new investors. If you're a public company, Pulse by Public.com can help you build deeper relationships with your investors, share your company narrative with innovative formats, make investor information more discoverable, reach retail investors where they're already engaged, and much more. Pulse by Public.com helps IR teams engage their retail shareholders amplify company communications and gain actionable insight into retail investor audiences. Visit public.com slash pulse to schedule a free demo. Welcome to IR Pulse, the segment where we talk to IROs, analysts and other companies' executives about the evolution of IR. This month, I'm joined by Jonathan Sinkman, Senior Vice President of Corporate Development and Investor Relations at aerospace and defense company Terran Orbital. John, welcome to the ticker. Glad to have you on the show this month. Thanks for being here. Appreciate the invite. Thank you for joining us. So for the listeners who uh, maybe don't know you or don't know about the company, just to get started, can you tell us about your role at Terran Orbital and what is the company about? Sure. Yeah. Terran Orbital. Uh, it's a leading small satellite uh, producer. 
mainly national security and defense applications, but uh, sell commercial and uh, civil government applications as well. Um, we uh, listed uh, via a SPAC transaction early last year. Our ticker is LLAP, uh, which uh, is our abbreviations for Live Long and Prosper. So if you have any uh, Star Trek fans, they'll be familiar with that. <laughs> oh, sure. So yeah. I lead corporate development and investor relations, kind of a dual hat role. Okay. And I mean, prior to this role, um, you were an equity research analyst at a big fund manager that I think most of our listeners, if not everyone, will know, Fidelity Investment. Uh, can you talk us through how your previous role has served you well in your current role? You know, is this your first experience with IR specifically? Yes, it is. Yeah. So I was a buy side investor for 14 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and I joined Terran Orbital, uh, given my view that the space industry is at this massive inflection point. I compare it to how the internet was uh, 25 years ago. And I wanted to have the experience working in an emerging industry, really in, our, in an early stage growth company. And what appealed to me about Terran Orbital was we are supplying the enabling infrastructure, satellite solutions to this exciting market. So it's uh, similar to to selling the picks and shovels to the miners going up to the hill uh, for the gold rush uh, two centuries ago. So in my prior role at a a buy side, large long only firm, we had great access to corporate management, uh, industry experts and research. But Terran Orbital on the other hand is a small cap company, just just $200 million in market cap. Uh, We're pre EBITDA positive and our investors are, are totally different. Uh, so uh, more different than the institutional investors in my world. We're about one third retail, uh, one third insider ownership and one third uh, smaller institutions. So it is different, but uh, you know, I've been impressed that they're all asking the, the same questions uh, that I did. Uh, they're looking towards the long-term and trying to better understand what's gonna drive the stock in the short-term and understand uh, management priorities, the, the technology, and uh, the, the, the opportunities. And I mean, obviously, as, a, as an investor, like in the past, you're saying they're asking your, your investors today, your retail investors are asking the questions that you did. What were the questions then that you would mostly ask of IR teams uh, back in the day? Yeah, so it, space is a brand new market. So mm. what, what, what we're seeing is, Back in the day, it was only the U.S. government and a couple other governments who would be able to afford the billion-dollar satellites that they would launch and take take seven to ten years to build and would last 15 years. But now we're seeing uh, the satellites we produce at a fraction of that cost. What used to cost billions is now cost millions and can be done in months instead of years. And that's opened up lots of new, new applications. So... You know, everyone's everyone's seen the satellite pictures uh, in the newspaper, and those are many of them are being produced by small satellites that we produce at fractions of the cost that uh, used to produce. Uh, so people want to understand what's changed, what's the drivers, you know, how we are industrializing the manufacture of small satellites at a scale and cost and speed that's not available for, and what the opportunity is for the stock. We've got good questions. Our disclosures have been a challenge. The accounting is, is sometimes noisy on our margins and our sales, and people need to understand that. Mm-hmm. A lot of our business is, is in the classified domain, so people, 
people, we, we can't talk uh, for obvious reasons about all the things that we're doing and that's a challenge. Um, but, um, you know, I, I give a lot of credit to the retail investors of, of having a good pulse and, and being committed for the long term. And I mean, I just wanted to delve a little bit uh, more into some of these challenges that you that you mentioned, but just with the purpose of really getting uh, some advice from you for other uh, IR uh, practitioners or other IROs out there that might be in the same position as you. Um, in particular, I wanted to ask you about retail investors targeting and engagement. Uh, working for a satellite company, I mean, I, I have first-hand experience in defense journalism myself and I know how confidential informations are in this industry and how cagey you need to be uh, I certainly was me- meeting very a lot of people who couldn't tell me anything that I wanted to know and so I mean in that relationship with with your investors how do you balance that the need of keeping that confidentiality that is particular um, to your industry and the need to also give them enough information that will, you know, bring them on board, hopefully. How do you balance that? Yeah, so I think we're, we're still figuring it out and, and definitely can't say we've, we've cracked the perfect solution. Uh, but in general, what we've tried to do is dual track our engagement. Uh, mm-hmm. So the, the outreach to traditional investors, we're doing. We're going to the, the, the conferences I used to attend as an institutional investor and and holding conference calls and, and that engagement, I think, is, is the first more established track. But uh, with retail uh, specifically, we're trying to do things differently there. Mm-hmm. A lot of that is with direct outreach. Investors really like, we found more regular and frequent updates. We've done that through uh, social media. We've done that through direct mailings. We've done that with some actual simple giveaways to get investors to reach out to us. Uh, that's worked um, specifically on your question about how to how to get around some of the things that we can't talk about that people are interested in. Uh, yeah. One of the best things I think we did on that is we actually co-hosted a event on emerging growth. Uh, this is a web platform uh, different than the other virtual conferences where a bulge bracket bank invites their clients to participate on their conference. This platform was we paid a nominal fee to present and anybody, any individual could join the webcast and actually engage with questions to us directly. And in that event, it was just space companies. And we actually hosted our new key customer, Robata Space Networks, which recently had given us a $2.4 billion landmark contract that was almost too big to be true. A lot of people had doubts about the company. Ramada mm. Space Networks isn't a known company. Uh, they're privately owned, uh, haven't actually launched any satellites yet. Uh, so um, the opportunity to have them present directly to space-interested investors was a, was a really great thing. And we got a lot of positive feedback on. So that more direct conduit to investors really helped. And uh, I was a big, big fan of what we did, did in that case. Do you organize in-person events where you meet with your retail investors as well? Is that something you've done or you're doing or you're looking to do? Yeah, yeah. We we also did an in-person conference there. It was the Money Show where they host, anybody can go to that and investors go to Denver booths and, and shake hands and try to meet. We're trying to explore more of that. 
I think the, the advantage of these virtual conferences is the lower cost in both in terms of dollars and time relative to the number of people you can reach. But uh, any engagement is a good engagement. It's just trying to figure out ways to do it effectively and efficiently. Of course. And I mean, you earlier, you just mentioned, you know, in you know, in this engagement, we're not quite uh, where we want to be. Uh, so, I mean, where do you want to be then? And what is next for your company? What is your next big effort to get there on the IR front? Yeah, so what we have laid out is a path to get to profitability. Um, mm-hmm. And the, the last, I would say, four to six quarters, has been all about converting our massive pipeline into orders, and we have done that. So we're, we were you know, just a $20 million company uh, a couple of years ago, and now we've built a backlog of over $2.6 billion of backlog, which in our definition is signed contracts. And now the next step is converting that uh, to revenues. Uh, we guided to $250 million of sales in the current year, and with that backlog, Converting into into sales over the next two two to three years, you're going to see even higher sales growth. Then the, what's missing is uh, really converting that into profit and cash, and that's where we're still in the early early innings. So we're our adjusted gross profit margin that those are just turning into double digits, but we have uh, targets of getting that to approaching 30%. So with that, uh, in the next four to six quarters, you're going to see profit and cash, and that is going to, I believe, resonate really well with our investors and being able to, to, to see to see the progress we're making. Okay. And just to close then, if you could pass one IR lesson, say, to, to your peers, someone who has had their first experience in IR coming from a buy-side background at a company in an industry where there is a lot of confidentiality to deal with um, um, and a small cap company, what would your advice be? Uh, to your peers, don't don't discount like this is. I think as an institutional investor, we had a tendency to to look down on the retail and just seeing them as being uh, uncommitted and and flighty. But my, my experience is they're looking at the right things. They're asking the right questions. They don't have the same level of a- access as I did mm-hmm. as a as a long only buy side investor, but they're being creative in how they get information and they have strong convictions and they, they're willing to stick with things. So definitely don't don't discount the power of them being in your in your capital structure. And I think uh, you can make a strong case that investing in effective engagement with them uh, is worth doing. Thank you very much for your advice and for being with us on the show this month, Jonathan. Thank you very much. Have a good day. AI has the power to revolutionize investor relations, driving efficiencies in both market analysis and shareholder communications. However, there remain some major obstacles to its adoption. Concerns around privacy, transparency, reliability, and a general lack of awareness. Join us in New York on December 1st at our AI for IR forum to gain practical insight and intelligence on how IR teams can make the most of AI in an ethical and risk-averse way. The event will be supported by insights from our AI Working Group, in partnership with Notified, a network of global IROs and finance leaders at the forefront of this transformation. 
take part in panel discussions and roundtables to find out how you can get started on this exciting journey that is shaping the future of IR. To find out about this event and others, head over to iamagazine.com forward slash events and secure your spot. We look forward to seeing you in New York. You've been listening to the latest episode of The Ticket Podcast, brought to you by IR Magazine, in partnership with our sponsor, PulseByPublic.com. Huge thanks for their support. You can learn more about Pulse at public.com forward slash Pulse. Thanks also to everyone who took the time of being with us today. For our listeners, if you enjoyed the show, make sure you like and subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Until next time, thanks for listening.